You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Good morning, Westwood. And good morning uh, to everyone at home, Westwood and beyond. What's really fun is, as we continue to engage folks uh, who have joined us online, we have folks in different states, different countries even. And so in some ways, there's a real blessing extending our reach through uh, live streaming and so forth. Want to welcome uh, Griffin. Hi, Hi Griffin. Haven't seen Griffin since he went off to college. Plugged into Saul Company. Those of you who know that ministry, good thing. And then with Lily, great to have you guys. What's fun about students is they always sit up front. And they get a bad rap. You guys should get the bad rap. So, great, yeah, amen, all right. Good, good, good. So we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 17, we're going to stay fixed, Luke 17, 1 through 10. Um, <clears throat> a couple of years ago, uh, two authors who are evangelicals, really love the Lord, love the kingdom of God, and have uh, already published 60 books, wrote a book that got my attention. So let me share with you the title this morning, see what you think. The title is, I'm Fine with God, it's Christians I cannot stand. I don't know why I bought it, you know what I mean? But when you hear that title, how does it make you feel? I'm fine with God, but Christians I cannot stand? Is that a little bit too harsh for some of us? But maybe the subtitle will be uh, helpful. And the subtitle is this, Getting Past the Religious Garbage in the Search for Spiritual Truth. Interesting. And so it begs a question. Can I give this to you, Brooke? You want to read that? It begs a question this morning. What is the spiritual garbage they're talking about? The spiritual garbage that potentially is in our lives, my life, the church's life that causes our witness, our light to be less effective, less powerful. Well, if you want to answer that question, you've got to read the book. Brooke's already starting right now. But here's the deal, folks. We come to a chapter, Luke 17, and we're, we're about two-thirds of the way through. We're heading to Jerusalem. Jesus is fixed on Calvary, the cross. But if you've been with us for any amount of time, would you agree with me? Jesus has dealt with a lot of spiritual garbage. That's been part of the narrative. Now, before we get into the garbage and see how Jesus rectifies that, I want to share a little bit about Jesus as a Jew, because sometimes we might forget. Number one, Jesus was part of the chosen people. He valued and loved his Judaism. How do I know that? He always went back to the scriptures. Moses, the first five books, the prophets and Psalms, he knew the scriptures well. He's always teaching from the scriptures. He kept the Sabbath day holy. In Luke 4, we already learned in Nazareth, he was in the synagogue worshiping, and Luke says, as was his regular practice, Jesus was a devout Jew. So before we get into this talk, please realize this. Jesus had no problem with pure Judaism. Here's what he had a problem with. He had a problem with the garbage within Judaism. 
the religious establishment, and especially a group known as the Pharisees. You familiar with the Pharisees? Well, we've been looking at them all through Luke, and it's not a pretty picture. So here's what Jesus does in Luke 17, and I just followed his lead. He's taken the Pharisees, the religious establishment, as an example of not what to be like. These are the pastors of the day, the the leaders, if you will, of Judaism. He says, don't be like them. That's Matthew 6, 1 through 8. And then on the flip side, what he does in these 10 verses as he's moving towards Jerusalem, he says, if you want to know what true discipleship looks like, be like this. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to review some of Luke. We're going to look at the negative example, which isn't a bad thing to do. Corinthians, Paul says, these things are written for your example, both the the good and the challenging, the negative, and then learn about what it means to be a true and daily disciple. So hopefully you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 17. And I want to start out, and I'll put it on the screen. It's very important. Context is king. We say that all the time here at Westwind. Look at verses 1 and 5. Who is the audience now that Jesus is talking to? Sometimes he's, boom, directly talking to an individual or a group like the Pharisees or the masses in the crowds. This time, and it's key to understanding this passage, he's talking to his disciples and, verse 5, the apostles. Why do I highlight that? Because it's usually important. The audience is always important to know why he's communicating what he's communicating. So if you can picture this now, he's on his way to Jerusalem, Calvary. He's got his mentoring hat on. He's equipping his disciples and apostles for ministry. This is training time. Why? He wants them to fulfill Philippians 1.27, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. He wants all of us to fulfill that. And so his goal in equipping is that they'll live in a manner worthy of the gospel, but he's going to use the Pharisees as the antithesis of what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, okay? And so if you have your Connect card, there's a gazillion of them on the chair. We always encourage you to use that, fill it out. But let me start with the blessing this morning. Every Christian can live in a manner worthy of the gospel. How? By pursuing four Uh, aspects of daily discipleship. So really what Jesus is doing is saying, you want to know what it truly means to be a disciple? These attributes, these pursuits, these daily practices are what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. So four pursuits today. Let's see what Christ has to say. Number one, pursue compassion and not judgmentalism. And guys, this is a hard uh, point to cover But if you have your Bibles, I want you to flip over just one chapter to Luke 18 and look at at the parable that Jesus taught there. Uh, I I believe it starts in verse 9. But there's a parable, and we've covered this in the past, a parable about a tax collector and a Pharisee who are doing what? Going up to the temple to worship. And so follow along with me. He tells this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and look down on everyone else. Can you imagine going up to the temple in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago as a worshiper of God, just like you came in today, and you're self-righteous, you're prideful, you have spiritual arrogance, and you're looking down on everyone else. This is the Pharisees. 
They had a judgmental spirit. They were arrogant. They thought they had spiritual credentials that they did not have and how sad it was. And that's part of the problem that Jesus is calling out in the first few verses. So now, if you would, look to Luke 17, 1 through 3. He says to his disciples, Offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one they come through. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones, we'll talk about who the little ones are, to stumble. If you're taking notes, this is a real interesting word. The word stumble there in Greek is scandalon. You know the English word, right? Scandalous or scandal. These are people in religious Judaism that are creating a stumbling block, a religious scandal. And instead of bringing people toward the Lord, toward his kingdom, they're creating barriers preventing people from seeing Jesus, the Messiah. And so what's Jesus calling us to be? <laughs> to be the opposite. Instead of creating barriers, we're called to build bridges for the kingdom and glory of God. We're called to let our light shine. We're called to be salty, as we've talked about previously. You know, when I think of building barriers, I love the metaphor that Paul uses in Galatians. Galatians 6.20, here's what he says. He says, for this, I am an ambassador in chains, and I pray that I might be bold enough in him to speak as I should. We all know what an ambassador does, right? Represents their country well, brings countries and peoples together. This is community and unity. And the antithesis was the Pharisees were doing just the opposite. They weren't bringing people together. They weren't building bridges. They were creating obstacles and barriers. They were creating a scandal of the Jewish faith. And so when Jesus calls them out, he's not being harsh or mean. His heart is broken that the covenant people of God who are supposed to represent Yahweh to the people and, and accept and embrace the Messiah are pushing back and creating barriers. How interesting. Now, let's talk about the severity of this. Look at what Jesus said. It would be better... For that person who lives scandalously, who becomes an obstacle or a stumbling block to the kingdom of God coming in our midst, it would be better to take a millstone, put it around your neck, and be dropped into the Sea of Galilee. Let me show you a picture of a millstone. You go to Israel, you see them everywhere. This was just common tools in the ancient world. They used it for grinding grain, for olive presses, and so forth. Guess what? Made a basalt lava rock, heavy stuff. Even Terah couldn't lift that, okay? So here's the deal, folks. Jesus is saying, this is serious. Why? Don't miss this. Because he has a heart for the little ones. Can I tell you who the little ones are in the Gospel of Luke? You should know by now. It's the marginalized. It's the broken. It's the poor, the maimed, the, the blind, the lame. It's the tax collectors who are marginalized. It's Luke 19, Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector who had no buddies because of his lifestyle. 
It's everyone that the religious establishment deemed outside and unworthy. These are the broken of society like you and me, if we're humble enough to say so. A few months ago, I encountered some Phariseeism in me. Ellen and I were coming back from Wyoming. We spent a few days hiking in the Tetons. And so we're halfway back. We stop off at a gas station. We get gas. I pull over. We go in to refresh ourselves in the store, get some stuff. But on the way into the gas station, I, I noticed a, a gentleman just sitting along the wall, and he had a dog. And he was so unkept. And my first impression wasn't very positive, I'll just be honest with you. And so as we got gas and we refreshed, we got a few supplies. Before I left, I sensed the Lord saying, Keith, just go say hello to him. See how he's doing. Okay, so I walk over and I introduce myself. How you doing, Sue? Sir, where, where are you heading? He says, well, uh, heading to California. Really? That's a long way. Where are you coming from? New York. That's a really long way. And he's got this dog. And I said, you know, how's life? And we got chatting about this, that, and the other thing. And I said, are you hungry? Can I get you something to eat? Oh, yeah, I'm really hungry, and so is my dog. So we were able to put together a nice little care package, enjoy that with him for a few moments, share a little bit more of life. And as I walked away and drove down the road, and I thought, gosh, Keith, how come your first impression was so wrong? How come there was this judgment in your heart against him? And I know why I can answer that question. I don't appreciate sometimes what I see, entitlement, begging, and this and that. But wait a second, pause, Keith. There's a lot of broken people. You had a brother once who was on the street for a long time. Did you forget that? And so my initial impressions were wrong. He was just a nice guy who was going through some struggles and trying to figure out life, and he just needed some love, some compassion. I don't know if you're like me, but time and again, I meet people. A couple of months ago, we were in worship on Dartmoor, and we talked a little bit about this judgmentalism of the Pharisees. I had a godly leader in our church come up to me and say, Keith, I gotta address this Phariseeism spirit in me. I'm so critical at times. And again, maybe it's true of all of us at times, right? that there's this judgment. It just seems like it's easier versus having heart of compassions and giving people the benefit of the doubt. Being like Jesus in not Matthew chapter nine, he looks out at the crowd and they're like sheep without a shepherd and his heart is filled with compassion. And he says, Father, let's pray that there's an army to be mobilized to meet those people's needs because there's a lot of brokenness. That's what Jesus came to do. And that's what the Pharisees did not do. But you talk about daily disciple, let's be people of compassion. You know, loving in Jesus' name. Giving a cup of cold water, Matthew 25, in Jesus' name. Second pursuit, restoration, not resentment. And folks, this is just so indicative of Luke and Pharisees. Um, if you have your Bibles again, flip back to Luke 15, 25. 
And again, I'm trying to show you how context is king and how these 10 verses are directly related to the Pharisees and Luke. What's happening in Luke 15? It's one of the most beautiful parables in all of Scripture. Parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and remember the lost son? But we forget there's lost sons, plural. There's an older son that gets often neglected. So what happens? The younger son, you know, Uh, just throws away his father's estate, riotous living, comes to his senses, comes back. He says, Dad, I've sinned against you. Dad, I've sinned against heaven. Please forgive me. And Dad says, let's throw a party. Let's have fun. My son who was once dead is now alive. Who was once blind is now, now can see. How did the older brother respond? Look at verse 25. Sometimes you don't hear talks on this truth. Then the older brother became angry and didn't want to go into the party, to the celebration, to the feast, the restoration meal, if you will. So his father came out and pleaded with them, and then they had this dialogue. And if you're familiar with the dialogue, you know what they're saying? The son says, I've slaved for you, I've worked for you, I've poured out my heart for you, and this is how you treat me? And this is how you treat my younger brother? You know who the older brother in Luke 15 is, guys? It's only one person. It's the Pharisee. You could find that out in 15 verses 1 through 2 because the Pharisees were already frustrated with Jesus who's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is their spirit of resentment instead of restoration. Wouldn't it be wonderful for the younger brother who was estranged from, from the father, from the family, from the community. He's finally home. Wouldn't you want to celebrate that as a sibling? Not the Pharisees. They had resentment, not restoration. Now, back to Luke 17. So Jesus teaches against that. He says, don't be bitter. Be a people of forgiveness. Don't be resentful. Be a people of restoration. Look at verses three and four. If your brother sins, go back to Luke 15. If your younger brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in one day, this is hyperbole, and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Folks, that is in the context of the Pharisees who couldn't forgive anybody. They had no heart for restoration. It was all about judgment and resentment. The older brother resented how the father graciously forgave and welcomed the younger son home. Now, there's two things we as a Christian community need to learn from this passage. And they're vitally important, folks, and you can't have one without the other. Why do we rebuke when there's sin? It shows the seriousness of sin, right? God doesn't sweep sin under the rug. He takes serious sin, right? Sin is an offense to to him. It hurts the community. Okay, so there's sin. What do we do with sin? We lovingly go to our brother or sister. We confront the sin. We talk about the sin. And then where there's repentance, like the younger son, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. We restore, we forgive. And boy, the Pharisees, for various reasons, did not do that. They chose resentment, not restoration. Let me show you a beautiful verse and take your notes, Galatians 6.1. Brothers, sisters, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you are spiritual, notice this beautiful phrase, should restore. God's heart is for restoration, for renewal, for for forgiveness. Such a person, how? What kind of spirit? What a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so you also won't be tempted 
The older brother didn't have a general spirit. There was no heart for restoration. He jumped after his father. In fact, he dishonored and disgraced his father by not going into the celebration. In that culture, treating your father like that, it was a shame. It was a dishonor. You want to talk about sin. How sad. A great example of this, if you're able to flip in your Bibles, is uh, found in Genesis 50, 19 through 21. What I'd like to do is show how both Testaments really work in concert with each other. If you're familiar with the story of the patriarch Joseph, boy, he had some challenging days, did he not? For well over a decade, he lived in isolation from his family, his father, his brothers. His brothers despised him, why? Uh, his father treated him a little bit favorably, coat of many colors. They wanted him dead. Fortunately, one of them came to their senses, threw him in a pit got sold into Egypt as a slave, and then God sovereignly did his thing. Joseph rose to number two in power. Famine hits the land. Who comes to Egypt? The whole family, including dad. Dad's dying. Guess what the brothers are thinking? When dad's dead, it's payback time from Joseph. We are in trouble. This guy's got the power to do anything he wants to us. How did Joseph respond? Let's read in the text. Verses 19 through 21. Joseph said to his brothers, don't be afraid, guys. Am I in the place of God? Wait a second. God's in charge. He's on the throne. You planned evil against me. That's the rebuke. Joseph never swept their sins under the rug. He shot straight with them. What you did was evil. It was wrong. Thank God for his honest rebuke, but then it goes on. But God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival, the life of many people, Therefore, don't be afraid, guys. <laughs> when dad dies, you're not in trouble. Don't be afraid. I'll take care of you. And notice, I love this next phrase. Not only you guys, but your family, your kids, your grandkids. I've got to take care of your little ones. And notice what he does. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That's beautiful. We all, including the Pharisees and anyone who calls themselves in Christ, need that kind of spirit. Never do we sweep sin under the rug, but we lovingly address it for the purpose of restoration and forgiveness, and then see what Joseph does? The family's back together. Helen and I spent a couple hours with some dear friends yesterday. We just had coffee, caught up, hadn't seen them in months. And during the conversation, the, one of the individuals shared about a family business that flourished. And sadly, in the flourishing and the prosperity, it kind of ripped the family apart. And it created some hurts. And one of the brothers took the initiative, like Joseph, to take the lead to bring about restoration. And has a really nice place up on the North Shore in Minnesota, trying to get the family together, six, seven siblings, so there's reconciliation, there's forgiveness, there's addressing the issues, and the family can move on. Guess what? No interest. No interest at all. And when I step back and I look and I ask the question, why? Why wouldn't we be interested in restoration, in renewing our family, being back together as one? Two reasons come to mind. Number one, it's hard work. This is hard work. This is soul surgery. I know that for a fact. Number two, it's easier just to walk away. Their problem, not mine. I'm not pointing a finger here at anyone, folks, but typically what I have found in marital counseling, in relationships, it's a shared problem. 
It's our problem. And in the body of Christ, if we're going to call to be community and one in Christ, we got to work through this. And so here's what happens when you serve the Lord, right? Children's ministry, youth ministry, the youth are going on a retreat. And let's say something doesn't go as well, right? A canoe gets tipped in the cold water this coming weekend. And people get ticked off. What happens? Don't walk away from each other. Walk towards each other. Work through the issues. I don't think I've ever been on a mission trip where the enemy didn't try to divide our team and, and, and cause rift because we're serving the Lord and, and trying to see his kingdom come. So what do we do? We proactively teach on this. And when there's issues, when there's sin, we walk towards each other gently with a spirit of humility and brokenness, wanting to see renewal. Boy, what a beautiful picture. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if the older brother said, gosh, Dad, I'm so sorry. I'm coming in. You killed a fattened calf. I want a filet mignon. Didn't happen in the story. The Pharisees kept resenting. It's not God's way. Number three, let's keep going here. Faith, not control. Faith, not control. And so this is the third purpose. Again, if you think through who the Pharisees were, I would call them, this is my term, please give me a little grace, religious control freaks. They literally codified everything in this beautiful faith called Judaism that Jesus embraced. One we've hit a number of times is the Sabbath. You can read in two documents, the Jerusalem and Babylonian Talmud, that there's 1,507 ways that are drawn up for how to keep the Sabbath day holy. Could you imagine one beautiful gift, hey, keep the Sabbath day holy, make it a day of worship. Now we got 1,507 ways to do it. That's ludicrous. And that's why Jesus got in trouble. He heals someone with a, with a withered hand on the Sabbath, he gets in trouble. Can't do that. It's deemed work. A woman couldn't pluck out an eyebrow. Sorry, ladies, just, just didn't work. It's in the code. And so they had their religious checklist. Check the box, spiritual, spiritual, spiritual. Boy, I kept 19 of the 1,507. Yay for me! And there's no freedom in that, folks. That's not God's intention. He gave the Sabbath as a gift, and they codified it. They regulated it. They legislated it. And it became a weight, a burden that nobody could carry. And so how do we address that? Look at Luke 17, 5 through 6. The apostle says to the Lord, increase our faith. Isn't it interesting? And again, I think in the context of the Pharisees, who didn't have any faith in the Messiah, kept pushing back on him, codified everything. This wasn't a walk by faith. This was a walk by sight. I do my religious duties. I check my religious boxes in God's please. No, no, no. Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. He who comes to God must believe that he is. He'll reward those who diligently seek him. Faith is foundational to our walk. And so increase our faith, the disciples and apostles. And that's a prayer for all of us, right? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Notice how Jesus responds. And again, if you're taking notes, please take notes here. My version says this. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, the Lord said, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in sea, and it will obey you. 
It's an unfortunate translation in the English. It really shouldn't be if. It should be because you have faith or since you have faith. The, the, the grammar there, it's a second-class conditional, meaning this is a fact. You do have faith. You just want more faith. So he's not reprimanding. He's celebrating their faith. But notice what kind of faith, folks, and this will encourage all of us, including myself. He says, you have a faith like a mustard seed. And guess what? That's good enough. Let me show you a picture of a mustard seed faith. Does that look monumental? These are tiny little seeds where in Matthew says, if you can have this kind of faith, this mustard seed faith, you can take a mountain and cast it into the sea. Here he uses a mulberry tree, again, because of context. Mulberry tree is massive, deeply rooted. You have this little faith. Boom, great things can happen. Two lessons. Number one, if you're in Christ, don't beat yourself up about your little faith, your mid-faith, or your great faith. Thank God he's given you faith. It's a gift. But number two, you know what's so striking about this passage? Friends, it's not the size of your faith that matters. It's the object of your faith that matters. Who is the object of our faith? It's Yahweh. It's the creator of heaven and earth. It's our great God and Savior who from eternity past was chosen to save us. Folks, the object of our faith is what makes our faith great, not the amount of it. How do I know that? Well, read Hebrews 11. It's a hall of fame of faith. There's 16 individuals listed there. Guess what? They didn't have the best of credentials. Abraham was a pagan from Ur of the Chaldees. And yet God includes him in the hall of fame of faith. Can you imagine being a guy like Gideon who's like shaking in his boots because he's he's going out to war and he doesn't feel like a warrior? And God says, you got 30,000 men, too many to go to battle. Whittle it down to 300. Wait a minute, God, what are you thinking? That's one one one-hundredth of what I had. I like my 30,000. God says, no, 300, why? The battle is the Lord's. The object of our faith, he's fighting for us. Remember Joshua? Can you imagine being Joshua, filling the big shoes of Moses? Joshua comes into the promised land, and God says something really unusual. Hey, have Israel march around this fortified city called Jericho seven times. Let the priests whip out their ram's horn, blow it, and guess what's going to happen? The walls of the city are coming down. It's going to be a rampart. You're going to walk in and conquer it. What does Joshua do? Okay. He did it. It happened. The object of our faith is the key here, not the size of our faith. Therefore, we should all be encouraged like the disciples and like the apostles. Thank God he's given you faith. Mustard seed faith. Because then we place our faith in him who does the impossible for his kingdom, for his glory. Look at your connect card because I want you to own this quote. You can go online, read about Andrew Murray. I would encourage you to do his life is monumental, folks. Monumental. Orphanages, missionary, he gave his life away. But he said this, faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. In other words, if I can do it, I can do it. I don't need faith, right? However, there is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. I love that. I love that. If I can accomplish it, I can accomplish it. I don't need faith. 
But when there's monumental things like the walls of Jericho are coming down, when Esther's a teenage girl marrying the king Artaxerxes of 127 provinces in the Persian Empire, and God uses a teenage girl, when a peasant girl named Mary hears from an angel, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. And by the way, Mary, you're going to be impregnated by the Holy Spirit. That's faith. That's God. He's the object. And it goes beyond, folks, what is natural. And that's the kind of faith we need to have to do the impossible, to see God work. We stand in awe of him and give him glory. What a blessing. So can I encourage you today? Don't worry about your mustard seed faith. Thank God for it. Put your faith in the object, our great God and Savior. Trust him to do exceedingly above, beyond all we could ask or think through Jesus Christ our Lord. Anybody say amen through that mask? Amen. All right, last one. We'll close out here. Pursuit number four, service, not status. Service, not status. Stick with me. We're almost done. Matthew 6, 1 through 8, I would encourage you to read it, but there's a phrase three times Jesus says, do not be like them, the Pharisees. You know why? They did three things. They prayed, they fasted, they gave to be seen by men. Why do you give, fast, and pray to be seen by men? One thing, to get status. Wow, look how, look how spiritual Joe is. My goodness, see how elegant he prays? Did you, did you see how much he dropped in the, wow. They were status-driven. And folks, it's rooted in just kind of a self-centeredness. And God says, don't be like them. But on the flip side, be servants, not status seekers. So we wrap up with a parable, and it's real interesting. They have three sections in Luke 17 that are a warning, kind of an instruction, didactic, and now he closes with a parable. Track with me. I'm just going to give you a nugget or two and tie it together. Jesus says, which one of you? We've seen that before, and I'm going to come back to it, but it's a key phrase. Which one of you? having a servant, having a slave, tending a sheep, agrarian society, or plowing, will say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once, sit down to eat. Instead, he will not tell him, prepare something for me to eat, get ready and serve me while I eat and drink. Later you can eat and drink. Does he thank that slave because he did what was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are good for nothing slaves. We've only done our duty. Now, please stick with me, folks. When you read that in the English, it sounds harsh. It truly is not harsh. It's a literary device that Luke uses all the time in his gospel. It starts out with a question, which one of you? It's a rhetorical question. Basically, Luke was saying, which one of you? The assumed answer is no. There is not one person here, no one in an agrarian society working as a servant, no one working as a servant in a home would do this. What wouldn't they do? They wouldn't plow, they wouldn't tend their sheep, and come in and expect the master to prepare a meal for them. Hey, gosh, I took care of the sheep and I plowed the field. Come on, Joe, feed me. It just doesn't happen. That's just not how it works in that society. Nobody would think like that. You know what Jesus is coming back to? He's coming back to quid pro quo. 
I've served you out here in the fields and with the sheep. Now I come in and you got to give me a feast. I scratched your back out there. You got to scratch my back here. No, no, no. It's just the opposite, folks. We serve God, and please, here's the phrase, with no strings attached. You know why we serve God biblically? Because of who he is and what he's done. He is worthy of our service. Now, I want you to know something. Go back to Luke 12, because you'll be enormously encouraged. Luke 12 was all about serving the Lord and being ready. Why? Because there's coming a day when Jesus, the servant of servants, will gird up his loins, his towel, and he will serve us at the wedding feast. There's going to be a feast. We sit down at the table. He's going to serve us. And friends, that's not our motivation. That's just the reality of it. And if we still miss it, go back to John 13. He washes his disciples' feet before he enters Gethsemane and before he goes to Calvary. And as we will, in a few short minutes, um, celebrate communion, the greatest act of service was what? Laying down his life for us. Let me close with another picture. I want to throw the mulberry tree up there. I love Israel. You know that. And I just love some of the pictures that come out of uh, the land. But remember going back to the faith picture when we have mustard seed faith. Boom, the big old mountain will be cast into the sea. Would you agree? That's a pretty sizable tree. I got these little dinky baby trees kind of in my yard. It's like, man, give me a tree. I want a tree. That's a tree. It's part of the sycamore tree family. But notice the roots. I'm not sure. I didn't read this in a commentary, but I wonder if the roots might be used as a metaphor for the negative and positive roots God would call us to establish. What are the negative roots? Resentment. What are the positive roots? Restoration. What are the negative roots? Judgmentalism. What are the positive roots? Compassion. What are the negative roots? Control. Checklist Christianity. What are the positive roots? Faith or faithfulness. What are the negative roots? Boy, quid pro quo. Scratch my back because I scratch yours. No. We've only done what a servant would do in that society. And so, folks, I think as we walk through this passage together, God wants to uproot the negative roots of any kind of Phariseeism in us, any kind of religiosity, and establish those deep, glorious roots that are grounded in the spirit of compassion, forgiveness, reconciliation, faith, fruitfulness, faithfulness. And yes, service. Daily discipleship. What a contrast. Religious guys should have got it. They didn't. And here we are, Lord. We're before you. And we open our lives, our hearts, to become the people of God you want us to be. Let's stand. Let's worship together. Let's sing about his mighty acts, the great privilege we have to build our life on him.